Welcome, everybody. Um, welcome to The Shortlist. This is episode number 63, I think. My name is Johnny Campbell. I'm going to be your host for the next 40, 45 minutes. I am the CEO and co-founder of an organization like Social Talent. And uh, you're very welcome to the show. If you're a first-timer, it's great to have you on the show. Uh, this is a weekly show and podcast that goes out on uh, iTunes and Spotify, but also goes out live on LinkedIn and YouTube uh, every Wednesday, pretty much every Wednesday. And we talk about all things talent-related, recruiting-related as well, particularly focused on things that leaders can impact. And today's topic is is one that's very close to our heart, uh, as you will know as a regular listener. But we're taking a particular angle on it today that I think is interesting, and that's forgotten diversity, uh, which I think is pretty important. Before I go into that and introduce our guest today, let me just quickly remind you, if you want to know more about our show, want to find out more about the shortlist, check out our previous episodes and what's coming up next, you can do so at socialtalent.com forward slash the shortlist. So talking about forgotten diversity, there can be absolutely no denying the need for diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace. We get it. If you're a regular listener, you're you're on board. We get this. But when we use the term diversity, it's important to remember what this actually means. Just stop for a second. According to Workable, the types of diversity are theoretically infinite. They encompass every characteristic that appears with variations among a group of people. So over to make organizations truly inclusive, we have to look beyond a, a limited definition of diversity and expand the scope to include everything like socioeconomic backgrounds, cognitive diversity, class, etc. While this can seem daunting, our guest on the show this week will help break it down. Jen Lambert is joining us from the west coast of the U.S. Uh, this morning for her, and she's the chief, chief strategy officer at Terra Staffing Group. She's here to shine a light on forgotten parts of diversity and show the importance of social mobility in terms of solving some of the recruiting challenges that you all have. And also to give us some examples of a company she's working with are nailing this approach. Jen, welcome to the show. It's a real pleasure to have you. Really excited uh, to have you on the show. I'm dying to hear, maybe you can share with our audience a little bit more about yourself, Terra Staffing Group, and why this topic's important to you. Absolutely. So Terra Staffing Group is a Seattle, Washington, USA based company. We have uh, 14 branch offices across four Western states in the United States. And we do a lot of different types of staffing and recruiting. A lot of what we do is based in manufacturing. So we have a team that specifically focuses on technical and professional roles. That's a smaller boutique part of our firm. The vast majority of what we're doing is contract temporary staffing, um, some full-time placement as well, a lot of work in manufacturing, a lot of work in distribution. And so a lot of, of the workforce that we're connecting with employment is more entry level, um, a little more unskilled. And so this topic is very, very personal for me. Um, it's, a, it's a high interest for me professionally as well as personally. Professionally, this is the, the world that we operate in. I remember saying to one of my business partners once upon a time, you know, I had a certain amount of discomfort around the types of jobs that we were putting people into. And, and his response to me was a really good one. He said, Jen, we didn't create low wage jobs. We can just make them a better experience for people. And that's what I've focused on for the past almost three decades. Um, that I've been in this business is how do we make this segment of the workforce 
um, more successful? How do we create a better work experience for people who are at that lower end of the economic scale and the lower end of the skill scale? It's also personal for me because I have personal experience. Um, I can share a story later about a family member um, who is cognitively impaired for whom employment made all the difference in her world. I've seen it make a difference firsthand. And so it's a topic that, that is very near and dear to my heart. Jen, I'm going to start, as we always do in the show, with a bit of news. And this is some news from several months back, but I think super important to uh, this topic and to our audience. So now let's roll the news. So to say the news, it's coming from earlier in the year, right? And I read this article at the start of the year in the magazine in the Harvard Business Review. And I think it's a it's a fantastic read. We're going to put a link out on the show notes and we'll put it live for anyone listening on YouTube or LinkedIn. And the article I want to reference is called The Forgotten Dimension of Diversity by Paul Ingram. And it's a big read, uh, but I think quite an important read as it contains a lot of mm -hmm. really well-researched data. And there's obviously great passion in this. Um, before I comment myself on this, what were your initial thoughts on this? What did you get from this, Jan? Did you learn anything new? Um, and if so, what did you learn? You know, I, I feel like I'm living this. And so I was excited to see a publication like Harvard Business Review take on this topic. I mean, it, it really is um, it, it is really important. And it's so interesting. It was interesting to me the, the point that was made here that that when you address the issue of social class, you also pick up other issues uh, with it. Right. Because Sadly, uh, there is a more disparate impact with, with social class issues for um, individuals in the black community or the brown communities, right? And so if you are addressing social class, you are also addressing racial disparities at the same time, which, um, and, and you're also, you're, you're not so narrowly cutting that, that diver those diversity lines. I think we've gotten overly simplistic um, about just cutting across racial lines. And it's, I think it's a more intellectually honest approach to look at social class. And to kind of, just to kind of demystify this for our listeners and viewers today, what we're talking about is income, typically, not only income, but we're talking about those who have and those who have not. And rather than looking at race and looking at gender and looking at backgrounds, we're saying, you know, organizations tend to, of course, give focus to those topics as they should in their DEI efforts, which is fantastic. But one of the things the article pointed out was that almost nobody, almost nobody prioritizes this. And it is a separate challenge to your ethnicity, your gender, your background, your, your sexuality, all these things. It's just different. And it's a different, it's a different, um, cut of society, a different way of looking at society that requires different responses and different uh, actions to try and Im improve the lot of those who are uh, perhaps, uh, according to the data in this article, misrepresented and, and and who don't have the same opportunities. So, so when you look at this, and you know, uh, when you first of all tackle that topic of why people don't focus on it, what's your what's your sense of why this isn't a leading topic for every DNI committee? I think it's 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 more invisible, right? It's mm. easier for us to uh, tackle issues that we can see readily with our eyes, mm. um, and and I think that there's so much there's there is a certain amount of uh, just lack of visibility to it. I think that there's some shame around it. I don't think people often talk openly about 
you know, I grew up in a single mom household, not my story, but, you know, people don't always talk about those things. They don't talk about the fact that maybe nobody in their family has gone to college, that they grew up poor, right? That's, that's just something that is still a very uncomfortable topic. One, it's not visible. Two, we don't talk about it. And um, yeah, I think that's part of why organizations aren't tackling that. It's a fair point. I remember um, a couple of years ago meeting um, a fantastic woman called Joanna Abai, who has since become one of the presenters on the social talent platform talking about diversity. And she was uh, lined up to speak at a private event we were running in Spain for 20 of our customers. And uh, we were talking the topic of diversity. And uh, one of my colleagues had lined her up to, to, to speak. And um, she is a black woman from the UK. And as she was taking the stage in the small room, I, I you know, so, well, I know what this topic's about, you know, it's most likely going to be about her race or gender or perhaps both. So let's go. And she spoke about neither. She spoke about being poor and she spoke yeah. about the challenges of poverty and never once yeah. talked about race, and never once talked about her gender uh, because that was the area. And I said, shame on me. I went into this. Again, I looked at what was visible to your point. What you can see is what you assume is, is the topic is the thing to fix. Uh, and a there's a great story. Well, there's a, you see, you don't see that hidden layer. You know, I I, I spoke right. with another colleague today, uh, again a, a black woman who was talking about you know how she's presenting to to individuals and talking about diversity, and she has those two lenses. And I said to her, I said, there's another, there's a third lens. I said, you're an English woman working in in a culture of Irish people. I said, that's another at least one other lens that people wouldn't think about. And it's really important and could impact how you do your work and how you fit in. And I think you're right, the visible things. Are really important and, and you mentioned uh, neurodiversity I, i've talked to folks and we've had um uh, some great guests in the past talking about uh, uh, disabilities and so on and so forth and uh, you know the, the very visible disabilities in that category and they don't get much but in the category of disabilities the, the visible ones get the focus and neurodiverse folks yeah. you know who have disabilities you can't see um don't tend to get overlooked that's probably your experience as well jen is it Absolutely. And, and mis they get overlooked and misunderstood. Mm -hmm. There's there's a great book by Malcolm Gladwell, Conversation or Talking to Strangers, Conversations with Strangers. I don't recall the specific title, but he talks about how, you know, we don't we don't really know what we're what we're dealing with until we get deeper under the hood. And he tells a story about uh, the Amanda Knox trial and how her behavior was, if you remember that, that whole the situation with the, the murder in Italy, and she was presumed to be guilty because of her behavior. Um, but she has a particular personality type that behaves differently than we would expect. And so there was assumptions made. The same thing happens when we're interviewing people. When people's behavior is different than what we expect to show up, we start making assessments and judgments and interpretations of why they're behaving that way. And it may be much more complex than, than we really understand. I want to take one piece from the article, Jen, and get your thoughts on it. And it, it, the author um, claims that 67% of job postings for production worker supervisor in the US require a bachelor's degree, even though only 16%, 16% of the people who hold the job have that qualification. Yeah. Is this disparity between what we ask for and what we hire or have, is this real? And if so, um, how do we combat this? Yeah, it's it's absolutely real. It's what it's what I'm combating. My team is combating every single day. I literally had this conversation with a, a client yesterday, looking at a job description where they're requiring a a very not not just a degree, but a very specific degree for a role that arguably 
a person with a certain set of experience could be very successful in, in the role. And, you know, why, why do we do this? I don't know. I, I, I don't know if it's just out of habit. If we, if we're, you know, filling in the blank on a, on a job posting template and there's some education piece that we think we have to fill in, um, but it's absolutely the wrong way to approach it. I, uh, we advocate much more for reverse engineering. What are the skills? What are the, what is the actual experience, the actual skills that an individual needs to bring to that role to be successful? And that ends up creating more opportunity and more inclusion. And it makes the yeah. job more fillable. Right. It does. And I think this is it's an important piece. And what I want to talk to you about the skills based hiring approach. It reminds me of a story. I listened to a podcast recently about uh, it's a fascinating podcast about a gentleman um, who went to work in a Frito-Lay factory many, many years ago. And he was a Mexican immigrant into the U.S. And uh, to get a job in the factory, um, you know, he had to lie. And his wife filled out the application form for him. She'd better English. Said, yes, he speaks English. Yes, he has uh, some sort of uh, uh, second, uh, two, two, you know, two-year degree post-college, and he got the job. All of it lies. And uh, this guy, <laughs> this guy, eventually, you know, he just worked really hard. He he created essentially the the hot sauce on Cheetos. So the the hot Cheeto version was okay. down to him. And he ended up being a VP for PepsiCo. Uh, many many years later, retired as a VP for PepsiCo from that role. But I think about uh, he told his fantastic story, but he shouldn't have been hired. Because technically he didn't have the qualifications. He ended up, you know, you know, and I doubt many people go from the factory floor in a in a in a Frito Lay factory all the way up to the VP uh, uh, suite in in PepsiCo. Uh, or maybe yeah. they do, right? But it shows how this 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 misalignment exists, um, and 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 how it can, you know, you really you only hear of the stories of the very few who kind of punch past it. But I feel like. 2021 is a maybe an extra turning point or maybe it's just an acceleration of something that's been happening but there has been talk of this skills-based hiring and this being a a new thing can you explain what skills-based hiring is to me jan and and compare it against what is non-skills-based hiring yeah I, i can tell you what it means to me and and that is that you're looking at at job uh, job qualifications that actually map to success in in the role, and and really what, one of the things we're advocate advocating for right now uh, is stripping out as many of the requirements as as you reasonably can to make that job more fillable. You're absolutely right. 2021 is creating a real opportunity to drive some of these these initiatives because just based out of necessity. Um, but the idea being that instead of hiring for off, for you know traditional resume. Um, you know, for ed- education, particularly pedigree around education, all of these different um, proxies for qualification, we're actually saying, does this person have the actual skill or in many cases, can they gain the skill? Uh, for a lot of the jobs that we're placing people in, it's all about trainability. Is a person who we believe can learn the skill? Mm-hmm. And, and that's, yeah, that, that's what we're focusing on. Presently, I know, I know that the trainability is a really important uh, factor as well. Not just having yeah. the skill, but the trainability. Scott uh, Blackledge is listening, and he's put in a comment saying, "Sometimes, sometimes clients ask for a specific qualification as a way to stop people from applying." It sounds counterintuitive, but some roles have a perception that anyone can do them. My experience is this sometimes as well, Scott. That you know, we put in these things to try and dissuade the inappropriate or wrong candidates from from from, from applying. So, so how do you how do you how do you balance that? How do you balance not getting a ridiculous volume of, of unsuitable candidates with 
actually really understanding what are the skills required and getting people who can do those skills. What do you recommend as a process or what do you see as a process that works for that, Jen? Yeah, that that is the challenge when you are opening up the requirements is that is then how do you how what what are you using as criteria? And that's it's so true that the perception that anyone can do it. I remember I had a friend uh, who was a CEO who had retired early and she said, I just want to go work um, as an admin. And she said, Jen, place me in a job as an admin. And I finally had to say to her, you don't qualify as an admin. Like mm-hmm. how arrogant to think that, you know, she says, I've been a CEO. I can do anything. Well, no, you you don't have the skill set necessary to be a, a successful admin. Um, so it's, it's really a, a model that we use is to again, reverse engineer and say, what is the work that actually needs to be done? So starting, I call it the, the done, the, uh, the, the, start with the KPI, but what was the work product that needs to actually be delivered? What should this person have done in their past that would lead us to believe that they could do this job successfully? Um, so breaking it down and, and really, I mean, it, it is harder for entry level jobs to really understand who is going to be the fit. So part of it is, do they have this, do they have a skill or an aptitude to gain that skill? And then there's also, you have to also about to, to do that type of work. Um, it, it does make the screen more difficult, for sure. We, we mentioned on, on this show only a couple of weeks ago um, how you know, social talents and our, and our colleagues had got involved in several initiatives in the US and Europe around upskilling recruiters or, or training skill, uh, training people who know recruiting background, how to be sourcers and early in career recruiters. And you know this was our kind of initiative to try and um, to, to give opportunities to folks who perhaps have been more marginalized, haven't had those opportunities in the past, um, who we really feel, you know, could do a fantastic job. Uh, recruiting is one of those jobs I think you can train someone up for. You don't need a bachelor's degree. There's a bunch of experience right. you can you can go after if you're, you know, you have some of the core attributes. Um, have you seen in our profession, have you seen that yourself, you know, obviously, you know, large staffing firm, you, you employ a lot of folks across your different um, uh, businesses and different states. Has it been something that you've seen in, in our world to be successful that we can take, take somebody, focus on the core skills and turn them into really successful recruiters? Absolutely. Yeah, we, we have refined a, a hiring model for recruiters in our company that we it is very unusual for us to actually hire an experienced recruiter. Mm-hmm. Um, we have just had we have had more success taking trainable uh, trainable potential hires and and building those skills. And so we've broken it down into, again, like what is the deliverable that they need to deliver? What have, what should they have done in the past that lead us to believe that they could could do this again? So for us, it's it's all about uh, somebody who first first and foremost enjoys interacting with people on a very frequent basis, somebody who's very comfortable connecting with strangers, somebody who has a track record of making good things happen and making connections um, between people or, or, or pro- projects. Um, so we, we have built out an entire model where we are taking people purely on potential and developing them into successful recruiters. What have you learned from that? Like when you look at the skills that you need to require, that you require, you know, let's say for something like recruiting and then what's successful and ways of assessing them. What 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 have you noticed that works? Like, are there any interesting insights as to the type of person who tends to be successful, the type of person who's not, the support that's required in the early stages that you can share with us? You know, it's, uh, yes, uh, it, it's, you have to layer in, in addition to the skill of recruiting, there is also the, the 
the environment in which they're recruiting. And so in our particular company, it would be different for other companies, but for our particular company, we are a very process oriented company. We have systems and methods and we like our ways best as a company. And so we're not a rogue environment. People who like to work rogue don't work well here. Mm. Um, people who are willing to trust and follow a system and process and relax into that and, and, be willing to do step A, step B, step C, and know that that's going to produce a good outcome are people that work really well for us. So we've had the most success for in our particular environment, hiring people who come out of a company or a system or an organization where there was a management structure, there was operational excellence, and they have a, a history of executing on a system. Um, that, that has been the most successful hire for us. That would not be a successful hire in another recruiting organization mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. there isn't those same systems and structures. Um, so I think that's an important piece too, is understanding what is the environment in which you're gonna be operating. It's not just the skill, it's also the, you know, you are a product of your of the environment to some degree. Great time, great time. I wanna go yeah. back and just share with you about, um, again, uh, the first time we met Joanna Obayi and she presented with our audience and she talked about, you know, the, the disadvantages of being poor. And she told her own personal story of, um uh, going to work for an ad agency and the ad agency you know had typically hired from their kind of uh, oxbridge type schools in the in the uk and and she wasn't from that background and they offered her uh, she was looking to, to to get an internship and she was offered this internship and like most internships it didn't pay and um what they did they they, they felt this is fantastic we're offering an internship to somebody from a, a lower socioeconomic background this is going to be fantastic for them and what they didn't know about her and what she didn't share very deliberately was she said when she was at, when you're at that level of poverty, she had a choice every day when she wants to take the internship up. She had enough money for lunch or transport, not both. Mm. And she said she had to make the decision, uh, do I eat or do I walk along a long distance? And, you know, you want wow. to guess which one won out. So she walked two hours to, jo to her job every day and she walked two hours wow. home. And got up really early and that allowed her to eat lunch you would never she too far too much pride to reveal this to anybody on the internship but she, she told the story more from the perspective of saying for a lot of folks they just wouldn't be able to make that decision and you know when you think you know sometimes employers with the best intentions would say i want to open the doors to folks from different socioeconomic backgrounds and give them the opportunity and they see this well i'm going to give them the job and the training which is enough and her point was, you actually have to go deeper sometimes. And you have to look at the circumstance and say, actually, that a person needs to be able to get, get to work. You need to provide transport for them. The person or has eat. perhaps, or eat, yeah, they have caring responsibilities. How do you figure that out? And and also, it changed my whole perspective on internships. I had had uh, free internships and low-paid internships in our business since our formation 10 years ago. Uh, we Our last two interns this year who joined us got paid market rate good salaries because... You know, I, I realized from what Joanna shared, well, I don't know someone's background. I don't know right. what they're doing. And I can't just say, well, the opportunity is enough. You have to give them the ability to, to focus on these things whilst allowing them perhaps retain their pride by not asking them these questions. Is, is that something you've come across um, when you're looking to hire on scale for employers, some of those challenges? Absolutely. Now, unpaid internships are not legal in the U.S. And so we don't that that's not that's not an issue. But one of the things that I've seen, especially in it, coming out of the pandemic, is just this this great divide between those who have flexibility and those who don't. Right. It's It's been a really defining moment. I think it's been a 
uh, it's really exposed some of the classism in our culture where there were people who were able to work from home. There were people who were able to, you know, make that work. And then you have an entire class of individuals whose work requires them to show up. Um, it requires them to to come into work every day and they don't have that same sort of flexibility. They don't get to stay home. They need to figure out how to balance childcare. When you're at the lowest end of the economic scale, you don't have a lot of backup plans. And so if the kid gets sick, if the car breaks down, if something goes wrong, then there's a ripple effect. And one of the things we are really encouraging employers to think about is in this time when a, a certain segment of our our society has been shown a tremendous amount of flexibility and accommodation. We need to figure out a way to do that for everybody. Like how do we get rid of these draconian attendance policies where if you're a minute late, you're, you're punished. Uh, now, does it matter to be there? Sure, it's hard to produce product if you're not there at the, on the factory floor. But can we give people the, the, a way to earn flexibility or or to create work schedules that actually work for people? So I'll, I'll give you an example. We um, there's very early start times for most of these manufacturing jobs. That doesn't work for everybody, especially if you're trying to get kids up and out the door in the morning. We have a client who simply changed their start time from 6 a.m., which is a very traditional start time for a factory job, to 8 a.m. And it has completely opened up the talent pool for us to fill that job. Uh, the number of applicants we're getting for that job far outweighs the, the applicants we're getting for other jobs. Uh, ex exact same work, mm. but just by making that, that start time a little bit later, it allows it allows more flexibility for that, that individual and allows people, particularly women, again, to to be applicants for that job. So I think we have to think about some of those barriers. How, how are we creating barriers for people to be successful at work? And, and thinking about you know, what are the issues that make it harder for a person at the lower end of the economic scale to be successful at work? Yeah, I think that's a really, it's a really great story uh, because it, you know, it is that flexibility which doesn't hurt the company that much or anything at all. No. It opens up huge talent pools that they wouldn't have thought about by just changing a convention. Um, but you're right; the the, the circumstances are, are are often unseen or un, un under, not understood by individuals who haven't had come from that background. Um, my own my own background in in the '80s when I was growing up. Uh, my my mother had to become the breadwinner. My my father was self-employed. Things got hard. He became an alcoholic. My mother needed to get a job to pay the bills and keep the mortgage and keep the house. And I I, I used to go to work with her. Um, she merchandised in in retail stores, and you know yeah. that was her job. And, and <clears throat> I, I only recently looked back and realized what was happening. I, I I had great perspective looking back at my childhood. I helped my mom every day after school. I go around all the stores with her with my little sister for hours and we'd help. It was great to do that. I got exposure to work at a young age. My mother yeah. had to bring us because she had no childcare and she couldn't afford childcare. Right. And she just luckily had a job where thankfully then no one complained that her kids came with her to do her job, you know, every afternoon. And I look back on Christ, she couldn't have done any other job because what would she have done with us, you know? Right. And, and, but there's still tons of people like now, right now. And sometimes it's a case of, you know, rules and regulations. Oh, you can't have children in the workplace. Of course not. Sure. We become a much, much, you know, better policed, if you like, world. But it creates such obstacles. And my, I know when looking back in, as a child, our, our family would not have had any income if we had to obey those rules. Um, because there was no alternatives, you know, there was there was no childcare; it wasn't available back then, and there's still plenty of folks right. who are facing those decisions, you know. Um, but I, I don't know if you've in the area you mentioned, obviously manufacturing jobs, etc. 
you know, I, I find it interesting companies like Amazon, who a few years ago, as I'm sure you know, Jen, um, especially with Amazon based out of Seattle, moved towards, you know, allowing uh, uh, flex, flex workers to choose their shifts, essentially, uh, to yeah. deliver. They could go on, they create a whole website and around this where you basically went on and picked the shifts that, that suited you. And I think that gave them a real extra boost in terms of the amount of the talent that could work for them. And I think others have copied, they've copied this because it's so smart. Yep. You know, um, I, what other innovations have you heard of? Are you aware of like changing the roster and the start time? Super smart, super simple to do and not enough people doing it. What else can make a difference to really open up more opportunity for folks? Yeah, that, that pick your shift phenomenon is that Amazon really is driving that. And we're seeing more and more of the clients that we work with uh, embracing it. It's, it's difficult, right? It adds some complexity to have all these varying shifts. But we, again, we're seeing more recruiting success when, when we include in a job posting that you can pick your schedule, pick your shift, we get significantly higher response than, you know, when it's a more rigid schedule, that, that would be, you know, a great innovation. Um, things like lowering the barrier to entry, reducing requirements like drug testing, uh, I think that's an important one for us to to think about. I mean, in particular, um, when, when there's more and more legalization, um, at least in, in this country, almost every state we operate in, marijuana is now legal recreationally and still employers requiring drug tests, you know, that where that person can't test positive for, for marijuana. We're seeing more and more of our clients to make that job fillable and open up the talent pool. They're allowing, they're either completely getting rid of drug testing or they're at least removing the um, the marijuana component of that drug test result as a requirement. Um, you know, it's, it, it's again, one of those requirements that is so classist. I was sitting with a CEO at dinner one night, a group of CEOs, and half of them are talking about their favorite strain of of marijuana, right? I mean, they're using, but I know these that their companies hire people that they're requiring to drug test. And I asked, I confronted one of them and I said, now your company requires drug testing, correct? And, and he said, well, yeah, because, you know, we, we can't trust the warehouse workers to, you know, be using <laughs> drugs. Oh, sure. So you're running the company making, you know, financial decisions um, and it's fine for you, but but not for that warehouse worker. And it's such a classist thought. And and we put it under the guise of safety, a safety issue. Mm -hmm. It's not a safety Safety issue. Uh, it's not a safety issue anymore than me having a glass of wine last night was a safety issue for me coming to work today. So, uh, you know, that's an issue. The other is uh, opening up the doors to individuals with criminal conviction records. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. That is a huge untapped uh, potential talent pool. And I think employers who have be have been more flexible about those requirements have found a very trainable, very willing uh, talent source. At, at their at their disposal, um, people who are very grateful to have the opportunities. Here, here's so many employers complaining about turnover and lack of you know lack of reten retention. Uh, if, if they thought more broadly about opening the doors to different talent pools, I think they'd find that's not is not as much an issue. I think for those uh, those international listeners, uh, maybe don't have the experience working in the U.S. You know, the U.S. has one of the highest level incarceration rates in the world, and what for example in Europe. Um, what, what you'd be, you know, put in jail for and get a criminal record for is very different in the U.S. There's things that would be absolutely no way you have a criminal record for in Europe that you would 
get automatically a criminal record for in the US, um, for whatever reasons historically and politically have led to that, it causes yeah. this big, 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 big disparity, you know, in terms of, of those who are formerly incarcerated not being eligible, yet having the skills, having the willingness. And, and then from a societal point of view, if you don't offer those jobs, that the, the chance of repeat offending goes way, way up because how else is that Absolutely. person going to get income when you close all the doors to them? Uh, and there's big multinationals. I've heard great stories about big multinationals, call centers, all sorts of businesses saying we we actively you know hire in the formerly incarcerated population. Yes. And we, we have great programs and we've had amazing success. And surprise, they didn't steal everything. They didn't break things. They just right. worked hard, you know? No, I, w I was disabused of that notion a long time ago. Uh, this was in a less enlightened time in my life. I was out meeting with a prospective client. And the uh, this was at a time when we were very proud of the fact that we you know, conducted very rigorous criminal background checks on everybody. Um, and this employer said to me, asked me the question if we conducted criminal background checks and very proudly you know, jumped into my sales pitch about, yes, we absolutely do. And he said, well, that's unfortunate. He said, this department you're walking through right now Every single one of the individuals in this department has a criminal conviction record. Not only do they have a criminal conviction record, they have they have a specific conviction for murder. Now, so let's talk about that because many employers have opened up their requirements, but there's still certain categories of conviction that are off limits to them. And when I tell this story in HR circles, I see them like, you know, kind of tense up like, ooh, hiring murderers. Um, but he shared with me that individuals who commit that particular crime, they pay a very steep price. I mean, they they spend a minimum 10 years in prison. They don't want to go back. They're very committed to not going back. And so the, the likelihood of a repeat offense is almost zero because they are very committed to staying on the outside of prison. And what he found, this was, a, this was in a, a boundary, which is a very intense job. It's very physical, hot, not, not, a, um, not a highly desirable job, but these individuals were so grateful for that opportunity. And he had almost no turnover in this department because he had thought bigger. And that was, that was a huge awakening moment for me to think you know, to start to think bigger and, and think differently about how do you make that job more fillable, but also how do you be more fair um, to, you know, do, don't we all deserve the opportunity to start over again? Mm -hmm. And it's, 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 it's funny because you, yeah, sorry, I mean, it's, 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 it's not funny, haha, but it's, you mentioned this point around, you know, being surprised by this. And it's interesting, the article we talked about earlier on, referenced how one of the ways to really unlock this diversity is having more folks in an organization who have different backgrounds. And yes. I imagine if you have a policy of not hiring someone with a criminal conviction record or you've only hired from top pedigree yeah, degrees, it's all very well to listen to a podcast like this and hear a conversation, nod your head, but you don't have that around you. You don't see that every day. Whereas if there was somebody in your executive team who had a criminal conviction, there was someone in your you know, your boss came from a real, you know, lower economic background. These are the things that begin to change cultures because you actually have real people dotted around the business, particularly in senior leadership roles. Um, right. I know one of the one of the uh, one of the um, uh, anecdotal uh, kind of stats in the article was that GDP is higher per capita in countries where more managers come from lower social uh, class origins. And it seems to be like a self-fulfilling prophecy in terms of if you have senior leaders with more of a mixed background, you're going to have more of a mixed uh, uh, team in the business and you're going to have higher success and it tends right. to have knock-on benefits for the economy as well. So That's it's like, right. 
There are some good examples. Um, I think uh, in the article it mentioned the current COO of Walmart um, started on the shop floor at 17. Yes. And uh, I think her, his mother, uh, is the person who got him the job in Walmart yeah. at 17 because she herself a great is story. a shop floor worker. I love this stuff. Um, too often it's probably the exception than the rule. Like, um, True. you know, how do, how do you how do you really drive those leadership roles? Because again, it's one thing saying we should hire into roles, more skills based, and we open up opportunities for people at a more entry level role and uh, so on and so forth. But what do you think, how do we untap the potential of somebody to then accelerate up to executive level roles, running companies, making these real decisions? What do you think are the obstacles there for folks like that? I think time, um, you know, time investment is is part of it. I, we, don't, we don't know what was the time span from the time he went from the shop floor to C, CEO. You know, it wasn't overnight, right? So it's a long, it's taking a long-term view. We just know the encapsulated version of that story. But, you know, I would love to know this step-by-step, step, you know, how that, that story. I think creating better career pathing. Um, I, I think I was, you know, reading this article and I was thinking about a client that we worked with that had a, a good a well-defined career pathing opportunity, entry-level workers, they would teach them a skill and then they had the opportunity to test, demonstrate proficiency and move up the ladder. And every time they would move up and test into this new skill level, they would gain a pay increase and that gave them more opportunities and they could grow into you know, supervisory leadership, frontline management leadership. But almost nobody made it through that process hmm. because they, they required the employee to instigate that process themselves. And so the HR leader would throw up her hands and say, well, you know, if they, if they want to advance this company, they need to show the initiative to put themselves forward. They need, to, they need to ask for that test. They need to, you know, kind of, kind of really assert themselves. And again, like this is such a, va a, a value judgment about an individual's worth when, when, you know, there are people, especially at the lower end of the economic scale, they don't necessarily, Ask. And so what would it mean if we, instead of, you know, we mean in leadership, you know, demanded that people, you know, advocate for themselves. What if we became advocates for talent? And we mm -hmm. said, I see in you, Johnny, something that I want to develop. And so I'm going to put this opportunity in front of you. And yeah, you're going to have to reach for it a little, but I'm not going to make you reach you know, reach mm -hmm. more than I'm reaching to mm -hmm. make that opportunity available. Um, so I think having good career pathing, showing showing training opportunities, making examples of other people who have risen in that organization. I would love to see, you know, and it got me thinking more about how we inside of our organization could do a better job of making this visible as well. Really highlighting that. I was looking at a company's diversity report yesterday. Their self-reported data, and they were they were slicing it uh, among across uh, gender and across race. And then they were they had broken out company wide management roles and technical roles. And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to see a company's diversity data around social mobility? You know, to show you know that that that, that people can advance their career here and they can rise and improve their own their own life situation uh, through the opportunities here that to me would be a huge win i i fully agree with you and there's not enough people doing it i think there is a challenge you mentioned it earlier around the data it's hard to know who um who comes from that background the self-identification isn't always there yep. the questions aren't asked of the workforce there's a stigma attached to perhaps identifying yourself as somebody coming from a lower socioeconomic background and you know, any work I've done with clients trying to measure DNI efforts, it starts with the uh, starts with that classification challenge. If we aren't classifying it, there's 
very little we can do or prove that right. stuff works or have the data to say this works and this technique doesn't work. So often, you know, it's down to solving that. And there are there are great examples. You know, uh, the article mentioned uh, EY in the UK and their move, uh, which was the first of the EY firms to move towards getting rid of the kind of college degree or the certain degree requirements yeah. and saying we build it. We build an assessment that you pass that you get an interview regardless of your background. PwC making moves globally around similar initiatives as well. So uh, and I mentioned to you offline, um, NBC Universal are one of the organizations to take a priority so, uh, on socioeconomic above race, gender, and the other typical DNI um, yeah. um, sweet spots. Uh, they they recognize the, the correlation between socioeconomic background and lots of other areas, and actually it's one to tackle by itself. And we spoke about, you know, I think that, that there's other great data that says, you know, one of the, the, the negative things is that, you know, that uh, and I'll read this out, workers who come from lower social class origins in the United States are 32% less likely to become managers than those who come from higher social class origins. And that represents a disadvantage even greater than the one experienced by women compared with men, which is 27%, yeah. or blacks compared with whites, which is 25%. It's actually a bigger problem. Uh, right. But when you get to the, you know, if you, it's, it's the, the, the flip side is if, if you're wealthy, your race, your gender doesn't matter because you know you're the club you're now in is the wealthy club. We're all friends together. I was um, I'll tell you a story, an Irish story, Jen. You were asking me recently about uh, where I was going on vacation, and I took a week with the family up the north of Ireland. As many will know, the north of Ireland has its own colourful history, and I stayed in a town called Port Stewart, and uh, it's next door to another town called Port Rush. And um, I was only when I came back, my, my neighbor said she used to live there in her in the 90s when she was at college. And she said, well, Port Rush is the Protestant town and Port Stewart's the Catholic town. I was like, I didn't know this. And I was like, OK, she was. Yeah, I used to, she, she stayed in university in the, in the in, in between the two. And they turned up in a bar in Port Rush. And because they had Southern accent, we're told you need to drink in Port Stewart. You can't you're not welcome here. You're not allowed to drink. Here. Wow. wow. And so you have to go to a different town. And Port Stewart has, as a town is now the wealthiest town in Northern Ireland. And it's kind of, it's full of second homes. It's on the coast. It's gorgeous. You'd love it, Jen. Um, but there's no longer, uh, it doesn't seem to be any sort of um, problem with religion now because everyone there is wealthy. Not everyone, right? But there's so much more wealth. It's funny right. how, you know, when you give people- Rich income, trumps all, right? <laughs> you, know, you can solve loads of the world's problems by just giving everyone, you know, that better opportunity, more, more money. They stop, uh, they stop worrying about some of these other issues, right? So I'm not saying it's as simple as that, but there is a correlation between, you know, wealth can solve a lot of these disparities. You know, we all have in out in groups and out groups, and if you just move yeah. more people into the in group of of having money, having income, uh, it does begin to, according to the data, solve for a lot of these problems. Well, the greatest predictor of wealth is coming from wealth. Yeah. I mean, at least it's in this true. country, at, at least in the, in the U.S. And so, I mean, this is why I love this topic of focusing on 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 social mobility and, and looking at how do we raise people up? Um, because, you know, to your point about rich, rich crosses all lines, so does talent to some degree. Right. My yeah. I have a very good friend who has his master's in electrical engineering. He has his MBA. He is highly, highly talented. He happens to be black. Right. And he has no trouble getting a job like hiring him is a win, period, because he's super, super talented. It's not a diversity win. It's just a talent win. If you don't hire him, your talent machine is broken. Um, 
where's the real win in elevating individuals who maybe have not had access to those opportunities, who aren't the obvious choice. I mean, even some of the tools that we're using now, I, I saw a demo for an AI tool where they're redacting um, information from resumes to try to create a more blind hiring process. But even this tool still flagged the college as a top school, right? And is that really blind <laughs> when, when we're still giving that sort of that sort of weight to the quality of the school that you went to? Um, what if you're really talented and you went to a bad school? Like, could you still be a good hire? Mm. I think so. What if you didn't I, go to school? I, I, these, are, these are indicators we all use, you know, in every city where I'm sure everyone listening, wherever you recruit in or, or, or hire in, you'll, you'll know an address on a, an address on a resume. And you'll say that your head will say that's the good side of the city or the bad side of the city. That's a good Completely. neighborhood, bad neighborhood. That's a good school, bad school. And it, it happens in a second in your brain. Um, and I, it's great to see lots of this being changed, like LinkedIn announced this week that they're they're making available a button for everybody that turns off your photographs and also scrambles the the name with just four random uh, letters now as well, so that you could kind of have that blind hiring. But that's not that's not getting to the heart of these things. It solves for one or two issues quite well, but potentially well, but it doesn't get to the heart of this issue, which we just established is arguably a bigger issue and a bigger impediment to progress and opportunity than any of the other big categories of diversity. So I think um, I, I want to sum, summarize because we're, we're almost at closing. I'm going to ask you for your last tip in just a second, Jen. But I think you know uh, it's a good call out to anybody who is passionate about diversity, inclusion, and equity, and who perhaps has an opportunity to influence in their own organization, is to ask why aren't we addressing socioeconomic differences and backgrounds, and why what are we doing mm -hmm. to try and try and focus on that rather than just perhaps the typical uh, the typical categories. But Jen, you've given us a lot of tips, advice, uh, insight, and thank you so much uh, for that over the last 45 Thanks minutes for or so. Thanks for having me. But I'm going to ask you one more. Um, we ask all of our guests to leave us a tip for our shortlist of tips. Um, if you were to give our audience some advice, whether it's advice from your own experience or advice that's been handed down to you, if you pick one thing, what would that be, Jen? You know, this question has really tormented me, Johnny. I mean, I knew that this was a question that I was going to be asked, and I was on a four-day backpacking trip last last week. Four days, no cell signal, no Wi-Fi. It was heaven. But that question was rattling around in my mind for all the miles that I hiked with a 30-pound pack on my back. I was like, what's the one piece of advice? Because I have a lot of different things I would love to share. But if I had to boil it down to one, I, I turned to my husband while we were backpacking, and I said, I got to come up with one piece of advice, and and it and he said that uh, it was funny because the the one piece of advice that came to mind is the one that he thought was the most powerful as well, and and one that he sees as far as how I've lived my life, and that is start from a place of yes, start from a place of yes. Think about, and I think it's relevant to this topic. It's relevant to your personal life, your professional life. How instead of saying why not or you know what what are the barriers start from a place of yes what if you if the willingness is there if the desire is there to make something good happen then it's just a matter of details but at least start from that place of yes um so much of my life's opportunity that's opened up to me has just because i've been willing to say yes more than i said no um sometimes i was absolutely scared by the yes because it put me in a complete place of discomfort but that's where the best things have happened to me is where I got myself out of that comfy, comfy place into that more uncomfortable, challenging place um, and started from that point of yes. 
And to that point, I'm glad I said yes to this conversation with you. And I'm glad uh, our listeners said yes to, to listening to this. Jen, I think you're right. Um, uh, there's a movie on Netflix, a family movie called Yes Day that was released, I think, late last year. Ah. It speaks to this. It's like, you know, take the approach of yes to everything. And I remember reading a book about 10, 15 years ago about the true story of somebody who decided he woke up one morning and said, I'll say yes to everything. And where that took him over the next few years. It's fascinating. Yeah. It's a whole lot more interesting than our typical no. And it's a great philosophy. Quick last yes. question from Richard Shaw. Yes. Richard Shaw is asking, is this recorded? Can I get a copy of this fascinating discussion to share with colleagues? Of course you can, Richard. This will be available as a podcast recording on Spotify or Apple tonight. Um, and you can also go back to our YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash social talent, or my LinkedIn profile, and you'll find a full video recording available to play of all these shows. So uh, please do share that. I'm glad we could help you, Richard, and your team. Jen, thanks so much for having, uh, taking the time Thank and you. saying yes to joining us and yes to try and choose something more for those perhaps from different socioeconomic backgrounds who aren't being, being considered and aren't given the limelight. And hopefully by shining this light on them today, others will do so in turn. Thanks, Jen. I hope Have so. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. And thank you for listening. Thanks for saying yes to the Shortlist podcast. And say yes to coming back next week. Next week, we'll be back um, at the same time as usual. Um, we have a, a, a kind of catch-up show, part of our summer series uh, next year. We'll be having a recap of some of our uh, conversations we've had during the year with on some of our live events. So uh, do come back for that next week. Uh, you can come back at 4 p.m. UK Irish time. Uh, that's going to be 11 a.m. on the East Coast and 8 a.m. on the West Coast of the U.S. But of course, our podcast is is uh, available uh, for whenever you need it on Apple and Spotify. And again, Richard, thanks for that. By far the best and most insightful discussion I've, I've heard in years. Well done. Uh, thank you, Jen, for driving that discussion. And there's 62 more episodes for you to find. And you'll find them all at socialtalent.com forward slash the shortlist. Until next week, thanks for listening. And don't forget, next time you're asked, say yes. Thank you.